Well, let's turn our Bibles to Exodus chapter 16, and hopefully we'll get through two chapters today. We are continuing the journey of the children of Israel as they go from Egypt to Mount Sinai. Last week, we got up to the point where they at Elam. That was a place where there was a beautiful oasis with 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. So just as a recap, the first stop out of Egypt was Succoth. And each of these stops tells us something about our spiritual walk, our spiritual pilgrimage. So Succoth is tent city where it reminds us that we're sojourners or pilgrims. We're temporary residents on this earth. Etham is on the edge of the desert. And it reminds us that God, Ether means with them. So God is with us when we go through those hard times. Then the next one was between Pihakiroth, Mouth of the Gorges, and Migdol, which means Tower. God put them in a hard place, not just so we can grow, but also so he can reveal himself to others around us and get glory. Mara, that was another stop. Uh, the next one, there was bitter waters there, and there was a tree of forgiveness. So they put the tree in the water, and it became sweet, and a picture of the cross. Then there was Elam, or Mighty Ones. That was the oasis he just talked about. And then the wilderness of sin is where we come to now. Now, sin is just a, it doesn't mean sin, it's just a, a name of a place. So it doesn't really mean anything, but it is actually applicable because that's where they are going to sin. And then after that, we're going to go to rest number seven, which is uh, Rephidim, um, which is like a rest stop. So let's start in verse one of chapter 16. Pray first. Lord, thank you, Lord, for these scriptures. Lord, I'm just learning so much as I read these. And um, Lord, the, the lessons that you're teaching the Israelites here are so important for us too, Lord. And I pray that we can internalize the lessons that you're teaching them because your word says in Corinthians that, all these things happen for our example, for our learning, for our benefit. And so I pray that you help us to not just read this as something that happened a long time ago, but something, Lord, that you're showing us today in Jesus' name. And also that we can learn these lessons without having to go through the trial. Amen. So, verse 1. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. So that's one month. They've been traveling one month. So the stops up to this point have is taken one month to get to where they are. It gives you an idea of, of how slow they're traveling. So they've left the beautiful oasis at Elam with the palm trees and the springs of water, and now they're in the wilderness again. So... We mentioned last week that God knows how to test us, but he also knows how to rest us, which is really good. We need that. And here, there's another test. And God's going to show them his power and provision yet once more. So what do the children of Israel do when they come to a hard place in their lives? Well, verse 2. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where we sat by pots of meat, and we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. So, pots of meat and bread to the full. 
It's amazing how the mind plays tricks and how the enemy, Satan, capitalizes on this. He deceives us. These ex-slaves replace memories of being beaten and whipped, having their babies drowned, and baking bricks under the blistering Egyptian sun, working long hours, and they replaced all those memories with fantasies of croissants and tender and juicy medium-rare scotch fillet steak. All right. And that's our tendency too. Whenever we think of our lives before Egypt, we think of it as the good old days when things weren't so hard before. But you need to remember that they were brutal days when we were in bondage before we were rescued, redeemed, and saved. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. So, this is an incredible promise. Bread doesn't normally rain from heaven. Yet God promised that he will provide for Israel in this unexpected way. So, in our lives, we need to be aware that God can provide for us in many unexpected ways. As someone was sharing this morning, they needed a drink, they forgot to have a drink, and, and then as they're going to a prayer meeting, someone says, oh, I've got two, would you like one? And it's just unexpected ways. You wonder, how am I going to get a drink? And God gives you one. Now, this is really interesting. To the murmurers and complainers, did God say, I'm going to rain fire and judgment upon you? No. He says, I'm going to rain bread upon you. I'll pour out blessing upon you. And that's the heart of the Father. And this is an example of grace. If you are a good example of grace, aside from the salvation, then this is where it is. The people are complaining, they're bitter, they're angry against God, complaining about the leaders, they turn their back on all the things that God has done for them so far, forgetting all the good things. And what does God do? He just rains down blessing on them. So that's God's grace. He's blessing people when they don't deserve it. So I've just got a couple of verses I want to read through. This is talking about the grace that God showed us when we were saved. So Romans 5, 6 to 11 says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his Son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his Son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. So it's good to remember that everything we have is completely and entirely a gift from God. And this verse reminds us of that. It says, What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as if it were not a gift? So we can't take credit for anything we have. We can't say, I deserve that. Everything we have is a gift. It's grace. And I think the ultimate scripture for grace is Ephesians 2, 1-10. It says, 
Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is a spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. So notice that phrase there, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. Verse 4, But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ Jesus. I love this verse 7. It talks about the purpose. Like God, with the Israelites and the Egyptians, God put them between that hard place on that beach with the mountains either side, so he could demonstrate to the Egyptians his glory and his power. Well, what's he going to do with us? Verse 7, So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us, who are united with Christ Jesus. Isn't that incredible? God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So I just wanted to take the time to stop and just Remind us of the Father's heart that everything that we have is because he loves us, because he desires to bless us. All right, second part of verse 4 in Exodus 16. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So what do we do with the bread that God rains upon us, with our talents, abilities, our paycheck? that we get each week by his grace. God has entrusted it to you and me. And now, as he said to the children of Israel, he says to us, let's see what you're going to do with it. Do we use what God has given us for our own good or benefit or for the benefit of the kingdom of God? And it shall be in the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So basically, God worked for seven days, created for seven days, and rested. Now he's using the same model, and he's telling them to gather for six days and then rest on the seventh. This is an important principle physically for us today. We don't have to keep the Sabbath on the seventh day. That's for the Israelites. We're free, that Paul tells us in the New Testament. But as a principle for our own physical well-being and emotional well-being, we need a break once a week. That's the way God has made us, so you'd be much healthier if you have a break once a week. Verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. So, in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. What are they going to see? Some bright light? No. They're not going to see the throne, or, you know, some image of Jesus or anything. 
but they're going to see his glory expressed by his great and loving provision for his people. So this is a real display of God's glory. Not that the image is not real, but this is how God demonstrates his glory through us. When we help each other, when we love each other, and we show grace towards each other, and God shows his grace to us, as he lives in us, he delivers us from all our battles and helps us in all our times of need. That's his glory being revealed. For he hears your complaints against the Lord, but what are we that you complain against us? And Moses also said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. So, they complained against Moses and Aaron, but Moses here correctly identifies that their complaints are not against them, but they're against the Lord. They're not satisfied with the current situation. They're complaining against God. And the same is true with us. Anytime we complain about our boss, our government, our school, supervisors, parents, or circumstances, who are we complaining against? God, because God is the one who put us in those circumstances. What does Paul say? Colossians, in everything, give thanks. So in every situation, not to complain, but to give thanks. Verse 9, Then Moses spoke to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. So I've heard your murmuring, God said, therefore I'm going to send you meat tonight and bread tomorrow. Truly, that's just amazingly abundant grace. It's amazingly merciful to these people who are so ungrateful, undeserving. It's just a pain in the neck. And God is just so generous in what he gives us. They ask for bread, and what does he give them? Meat and bread. He gives them more. And what's really interesting about this is that the bread, the manna, that the Lord sent to the children of Israel provides a perfect picture of the bread he sends us in his word and in the Son, who is the word made flesh. Come back to that later. Verse 13, So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. So Numbers 11.9 tells us that the bread fell on the dew. So the dew wet the ground and then the manna fell on the, the dew. Why? Well, we get an application from this. The bread, it could represent the word of God because we need to eat it. We need that to sustain us. But the dew is like water, represents the Holy Spirit. So to appropriate the word of God, we also need the Holy Spirit to give us understanding. There's no point in in learning, having a head knowledge of the scriptures if we can't apply it in our heart. If it can't make a change in us. And the only way we change is by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Verse 14, And when the layer of dew lifted there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance, as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. So here's another application. The manna, being small and round, speaks of humility and eternity. You know, you put a wedding ring on, what does it symbolize? Eternity. It never ends. Okay, so round. So we have the entire counsel of God. All we need to know to navigate life successfully is contained in the Bible. And even a kindergartner can take a Bible to Sunday school, you know. Yet it is so powerful that it's going to outlive this planet. So the Word of God, the bread that He gives us, is just incredible. It's all we need. Now, Jesus as the bread, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He came to us as a baby, but not only as a baby, but as a servant of all. And guess what he said about himself? What do you remember? His only autobiographical statement? I am meek and lowly of heart. That's it. I'm humble and I'm contrite. And yet, he is the great I am, the word made flesh, the eternal one. So as a picture of Jesus, his manner is pretty good. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person, according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. So, what did Jeremiah say about the word of God? He said, Your words were found, and I ate them, and they were to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. That's Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Jesus said regarding his body, Matthew twenty six twenty six, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. So we need not just to take it, but we also need to eat it. We need to internalize it. So there's many people, and I've done this in the past as well, we study the Bible, we analyze the Bible, we theorize it, we debate about it, you know, what, what this meaning of that word is, all that kind of stuff. But we don't digest it, we don't eat it. And it doesn't change our lives. So we need to take time to meditate on the scriptures, to let them sink in, so they become part of us, more than just a head knowledge. And also Jesus, you can learn all about Jesus, you can learn who he is, you can learn when he came and, and all those things, but you don't actually know him. Lord, Lord, they will call him in the last day, only to hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you, Matthew seven twenty two and 23. Why? Because they had no true intimacy or interaction or relationship with him. Now, we're not going to go there. The passage is too long to read for this morning. But in John six twenty two to verse 59, it's this passage where Jesus feeds the 5,000 with the, the five barley loaves and two small fish. And then the next day, Jesus preaches a sermon about the bread of life in the synagogue in Capernaum. And basically they're wanting him to prove he was the Messiah by duplicating the miracle of the manna. But instead, he declared that he was the true bread that came down from heaven. The Old Testament manna was a type or a picture of God's Son who came to give himself as the bread of life for hungry sinners. So that picture in, um, in John is, is a good one to read if you've got some spare time to help you understand 
how the, the manna is a picture of Jesus and the bread of life. So to receive Jesus, you have to believe him. You have to receive him. And like to get nourishment from bread, you can't just get the bread, like go and collect it. You've got to actually eat it. Okay. And some differences between the manna and, and Jesus, the word of, of God, the bread of life. The manna only sustained their physical life in the wilderness, but God's Son gives eternal life to the whole world. Just as the Jews had to stoop and pick up the manna and then eat it, so sinners must humble themselves and receive Jesus Christ within. The Jews ate of the manna and eventually died, but whoever receives Jesus Christ will live forever. So there's a difference between the type and the reality. Okay, verse 17. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered, some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. So no one's really sure how much an omer is back in those days. If we just say it's about two litres, that's about one kilo of bread, round number, easy to work with. So each person would eat about one kilo of bread per day. That's a reasonable figure, all right? So let's say there's two million people. What's two million times one kilo? It's two million kilos of bread or 2,000 tons of bread that God provided every day. Would you like to bake 2,000 tons of bread for your big family? So our God is a God of abundance. In his written word, he gives us all that pertains to life and godliness. Uh, 2 Peter one three, And in his son, he gives us all we need to live with him forever. John 3.16 I want to talk about two things. God's promise. God promised to give them bread and the meat. And I've got a quote from Wearsby. It says, In our pilgrim journey through life, we live on promises and not explanations. When we hurt... It's a normal response to ask why, but that is the wrong approach to take. For one thing, when we ask God that question, we're assuming a superior posture and giving the impression that we're in charge and God is accountable to us. God is sovereign and doesn't have to explain anything to us unless he wants to. Asking why also assumes that if God did explain his plans and purposes to us, we'd understand everything perfectly and feel better. As you read the book of Job, you see Job frustrated with God and repeatedly saying, I'd like to meet God and ask him a few things. You ever thought that before? The quote continues, But when God finally comes to Job, Job is so overwhelmed he doesn't ask God a thing. You'll see that in Job chapter 40. Can we begin to understand the ways and plans of God when his ways are far above us and his wisdom are searchable? Explanations don't heal broken hearts, but promises do, because promises depend on faith, and faith puts us in contact with the grace of God. I like that quote, because it talks about we don't need to know why, we just need to hold on to the promises that God has given us and experience God's grace. Now, another quote is concerning God's glory. So the important thing was that Israel focused on the glory of God 
and not on their own appetites. If they walk by faith, they would glorify the Lord and bring honor to his name. It's not important that we're comfortable in life, but it is important that God is glorified. It's a very important principle there. It's not important that we're comfortable in life, but it is important that God is glorified. When circumstances are difficult, we're prone to pray, Lord, how can I get out of this? When we ought to be praying, Lord, what can I get out of this? It's a different attitude there. It isn't important that we get our own way, but it is important that God accomplishes his purposes and receives all the glory. Matthew 6.33 God permits trials so that he can build godly character into his children and make us more like Jesus. Godliness isn't the automatic result of reading books and attending meetings. It also involves bearing burdens, fighting battles, and feeling pain. So, not, Lord, how can I get out of this? But rather, Lord, what can I get out of this? A change in attitude. The Israelites here were saying, get me out of this, instead of saying, what can I get out of this? And they just started complaining all the time. Verse 19, And Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. This is the manner he's talking about. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. So they were told to collect enough for the day, and at the end of the day, if they hadn't eaten it, get rid of it. And if they didn't, then it began to stink like rotten uh, yeah, worms and yeah, maggots and all that kind of stuff. Stuff you'd want to get out of your house pretty quick. So, the same is true of the Word of God. For whenever we gather teaching or truth without applying it, whenever we take in without giving out, we'll begin to tire of it. When we are chewing on, digesting and applying the Word, we'll always be hungry for more. So if people say, I'm not being spiritually fed, it's because they're simply taking information without making application. When I'm not sharing with others what I've learned, when I'm not incorporating into my life the truth that I'm being given, we get critical. But when I'm sharing and incorporating, applying, I'm always hungry for more. So if your Bible study stinks, <laughs> if there's growing worms, okay? If your walk with Jesus seems stale, I encourage you to start serving and applying once again. And then you will find the appetite returns. And here's another quote. Again, there's a personal warning here for God's people today. We can't hoard his word and try to live on yesterday's spiritual nourishment. It's good to hear the Bible preached and taught on the Lord's Day, but we need fresh manna each day if we want to be healthy Christians. There's no substitute for a daily time alone with God, gathering fresh nourishment from his word and that's the application from this thing here where we need to get out every morning and get our bread for our physical sustenance so too we need to get our spiritual sustenance so they gathered it every morning every man according to his need and when the sun became hot it melted so the sun comes up day begins and the manna disappears so the opportunity to have devotions if we don't have it in the morning can also evaporate, can also disappear. So the morning time, I believe, is the best time. I've tried having devotions in the afternoon, at night, 
it just doesn't work. I'm tired and and whatever. It's if you need to get up earlier and get up earlier and spend that time with the Lord. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus got up in the early morning hours. He rose a great while before morning in order to spend time with his father. You see that in lots of places. One example is Mark one thirty five. And as Isaiah 50 verse 4, why did he do that? In order to receive a word to speak to those who are weary. So we receive it and we give it out. It's interesting, if you look through other people like Joshua, David, Samuel, and there's a few others, Jeremiah and that, it actually states that they got up early and they read the word. So they were early risers too. Verse 22, And so it was on the sixth day, that they gather twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So this is the first time I believe that the word Sabbath is used or the, the principle is given here. So it comes before the law and it's to the Israelites. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, Eat that food today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people, guess what? went out, and they looked for it on the seventh day. But of course, I didn't find any. Now, the principle here is like this working seven days a week thing, when we should be resting for one day. If we work seven days, we think, oh, I'll make more money, I'll get ahead, all this kind of stuff. But guess what? It doesn't work that way. You might say, well, look, my paycheck's bigger. Yeah. Haggai says... Watch and see what happens, this is a paraphrase, watch and see what happens over the long haul when you discover that regardless of all your labor, you are still empty. That's from Haggai 1.9. So um, we can get greedy. And the children of Israel did this a few times, like the days of Nehemiah, they traded on the Saturday, the Sabbath, and Nehemiah said no. You know, they were greedy. So we need to just say, you know what, I trust you, Lord. I'll have a break. I'll stop working. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Notice, given you the Sabbath. Therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel called its name manna. It means, what is it, basically? And it was like white coriander seed, so about the size of sesame seeds, so really small little seeds. So white, white represents purity or holiness. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Psalm 119 verse 9. So in Jesus the word made flesh, we see nothing but purity. We look at each other and we see lots of flaws and we're a bit dirty. But when you look at him, we see only holiness. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Now, 
The psalmist found the law to be sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. Psalm 19 verse 10. And when we chew on the word of God or eat the word of God, you know, we'd read it for ourselves, we find that it's the same. It's sweet. Jesus is never grumpy, never moody, and he's never touchy. He never has a bad day. (laughs) Sweet, the fellowship we have with him. Verse 32. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. So basically, in the Ark of the Covenant, you've got this pot of manna, you've got Aaron's rod which budded, and you've got the Ten Commandments. So as a reminder of God's provision, power, and plan for his people. Verse 35, And the children of Israel ate manna forty years. Forty years. Two tons or more a day of bread that God provided. Amazing. And the meat as well. Now, now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. It was in the wilderness that God gave manna to his people, and it's in our wilderness here on earth that he provides the bread of his word, the bread of himself. If I don't feed on the scriptures daily, I will become disillusioned, disoriented, and confused. I get mixed up on the days I don't get away with the Lord in a quiet spot, at a quiet time, and enjoy the truths and promises of his word. Have you found that to be true for yourselves? If you don't spend time with the Lord in the morning, then the rest of your day just doesn't go quite right. Your focus isn't right. Your attitude isn't right. So instead of thinking about the Lord, what do we think about? Well, we start thinking about the meat and the bread of Egypt, so to speak. We start thinking about the appetites of the flesh. Because we're not being spirit-led now. Spirit's weak. The flesh is strong. We become restless and troubled. But when I take in the word, I find what Jeremiah said to be true. I find it to be the very joy and rejoicing of my heart. So it's a change of attitude. Now, again, going back to God's grace, like manna, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, came to this wilderness, to this planet, to murmurers, sinners and complainers, and dwelt among us. God didn't wait for the children of Israel in the promised land. He didn't say, all right, guys, I'm going to wait till you get out of this wilderness area when you've learned the lessons and then I'll put my presence with you. No, his presence was with them right from the start. He does the same for us. You don't have to climb a mountain. You don't have to clean your act up to find him. You don't have to ascend to heaven or descend in the depths of hell and oppression. He's already as close as a word in your mouth, as close as your confession, Romans 10. So he's with us. He wants to be with us. He's promised to be with us despite our failings, despite our weakness. That's an awesome promise. Now, it's hunger that drove the prodigal son home. Okay, Luke fifteen seventeen, And it's a hunger and emptiness in our heart, a longing in our soul, that will drive us home as well, that will drive us back to the Word. We need to humble ourselves, bow the knee, and stoop to pick up the manner of the Word, which God has provided us so freely and so faithfully. Right, chapter 17. 
Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So, now they've moved on. Another test here. There was no food. You think that they would learn something from the food being provided, but no. So, think about this. Just picture this. You're driving and driving and driving your car and you come to a a rest stop. You come to this petrol station or something. You see drinks in the window and you go, oh, I'm really, really thirsty. And so you pull in and you go, oh, can I get a bottle of water? No, right out of drinks. There's no drinks left. We can sell you fuel, but we can't sell you any drinks. And you're going, but I'm just dying of thirst here. What I'm going to do is start drinking my radiator fluid or something. This is kind of how the children of Israel would have felt when they arrived here. They're walking through this desert and there's no water. So remember that God is directing their steps. Okay? This is not a mistake. They're in this hard place, but God is leading them through the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire by night. God is purposefully leading them into difficult and trying situations in order to prove his power and to build their faith and character. So life is not just about reaching a destination. It's much more than that. It's growing in our faith, which is much more precious than gold that is tried by fire. We need to grow in our knowledge of the Lord. We need to grow in our character. And if we're not, then we're wasting the opportunities. We can go through these trials like the Israelites did and they didn't learn anything. They just kept on making the same mistakes and they had the same tests over and over again. You'll find that they had the same tests. If they passed the test, they wouldn't need to go through the same one again. So why did they keep failing these tests? Because their hearts were still in Egypt. They were guilty of ingratitude and unbelief always wanting to go back to the old life. And because of that, they just kept failing every test. And so what did God do? He just kept giving another test. <laughs> this is an endless cycle. okay? And we can be in this endless cycle in the wilderness too, unless we grow, okay? unless we change. So it's our own attitude that determines which way it's going to go. Either the test can make us better or stronger, or the temptation, it can make us worse and make us bitter. If in unbelief we start complaining and blaming God and being unsatisfied, discontent, then the temptation will trap us and rob us of an opportunity to grow spiritually. But if we trust God and let him have his way, then the trial will work for us and not against us. And we see that in Romans 8.28 and James 1.12-15. It also helps us to grow in grace. Right, verse 2, chapter 17. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people there thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. After all the things that God has done. 
and they're still complaining to the point where they're just about ready to stone Moses. And Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I going to do? He's just about at his wit's end. Can you kind of hear him say that? You know, he's ready to stone me. It would have been so hard for Moses to be the pastor or to be the leader of this congregation. You've got to hand it to Moses. He had to be the meekest man alive to put up with all this rubbish that the people were throwing at him. I mean, <laughs> we want bread. Okay, here's bread. Meat. God gave it to you. Remember you complaining against God? Verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Can you see the disbelief here? Is the Lord among us or not? So, Massa and Meribah, testing and quarreling. Now, if you mapped your life, how many of those places would you call Massa and Meribah, testing and quarreling. How many of those times in your life where things weren't going well for you, did you complain and get bitter and tempt the Lord? How many places can you label Massa and Meribah when we fail to trust God? So, you know, we can sing in church, all the way my Savior leads me, what have I uh, to ask beside? And then be quite distressed and disappointed. Or we can pray not my will, but yours be done. And Corey Ten Boom used to say, don't bother to give God instructions, just report for duty. So basically, don't expect. Just whatever comes, just do it. You know, if you're a soldier in the army, you might be told, okay, you're in the pit, you're over there, you're defending that piece of property over there. What have you got for food? Oh, you got these bread and water rations, you know. That's your duty. You don't complain, just do it. And as a Christian, sometimes we are in hard situations. What do we do? We say, not my will, but yours be done. We accept it. Now, I'm not going to go there now, but it's in John chapter 7. You can look this up later. When Israel remembered God's provision in the wilderness at the Feast of Tabernacles, they had a specific ceremony where they recalled this miracle of water from a rock. And in that context, Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So if you want to read about Jesus being the water and how this represents Jesus, then go to John chapter 7. The living water Jesus spoke of was the Holy Spirit, John 7.39. So here's something that someone said. It's no less of a miracle for God to bring the love and power of the Holy Spirit out of our hearts than it is to bring water out of our rock because our hearts can be just as hard. <laughs> so, Massa and Meribah mean chiding and temptation. It was hot. The people were thirsty and God said to Moses, here's what to do. Take the rod which has become a snake before Pharaoh, smite the rock and out will come water. So this is the the prophetic 
application of this passage. Paul gives us the understanding of what happened here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, where he tells us that the rock was Jesus Christ. This means that Jesus, the rock of our salvation, was beaten or hit by the serpent of Moses' rod. And that portrays or fulfills the prophecy given in the Garden of Eden where God said to Satan, you shall bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Genesis 3.15 So Jesus' heel was bruised on the cross. He was bruised on the cross. But as far as Satan goes, his power over us was obliterated, washed away by the blood of Jesus and shed that day. He was totally defeated. His head was crushed. So what happened when Jesus was pierced with a spear? Blood and water flowed from his side. And so again, the Holy Spirit, the water, So why would God lead his people from a place where they're being satisfied with manna to this rest stop where the drinking fountain was out of order? Why would he bring them here? What's his purpose in doing this? Have you asked that question to yourself? So you might have a Bible study or a retreat. We've been feasting on the word of God only to find yourself in a place of dryness. And you say, I don't understand. I was doing so well. But now there's like a drought in my soul. Why am I so dry? Is a sin in my life? Well, not necessarily. Because what's going to happen next is there's going to be a battle. And we're going to talk about this next week. But there's going to be a battle. The Amalekites are going to come and they're going to attack. Now, the Amalekites represent the flesh. Can we deal with the Amalekites? Can we deal with our flesh on our own strength? No. Okay. So, God brings us to this place of dryness so we will thirst. When we thirst, he satisfies our desire for water. So for us, when we thirst, we're looking for more of the Holy Spirit, his work in our lives. And so we thirst. God brings us to the place where we're dry. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that picture portrayed next week as we finish chapter 17. So this filling of the Holy Spirit, we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not just enough to have knowledge, but we have to have the application. So we'll finish here. I didn't get as far as I wanted, but that's okay. Father, thank you for the, the truth of your word. Lord, we know that we need your word every day because without it, we can't survive. We'll get weak. And when we get weak, the flesh will rise up and will destroy us. And we'll be too busy thinking about our bodily appetites and physical appetites to, to be thinking about you. Lord, help us to remember that, Lord, it's not just about the Word of God. It's not just about understanding your Word, but it's about the application of your Word and the sharing of your Word. We can't just keep taking in. We've got to give out. We've got to apply it in our lives. and We've got to tell other people about you. So help us, Lord, as we learn things today to put it into practice, not just pack it away as yet. I know what that means now, but Lord, to actually do it. So if there's anything here that you're showing us, Lord, I pray that you'll speak to each one of us and whatever it is in our hearts that you're showing us, that we will actually put it into practice this week, that we will change and we will grow to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.